All right. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say that to this paralyzed man, your sins are not forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Thanks. Good evening, everyone. It's good to be with you. My name's Chris, and we're going to look at that passage together just for a few moments uh, as we consider what it is the confirmees are going to be doing a little later. They're going to stand up and they're going to say things. They're going to respond to questions. And I tell you now, the answers have all been written down for them. So uh, now that doesn't mean they don't mean it. It just means that part of the service is a little more formal than maybe uh, is, is usual here. But no less significant and no less important. Um, I had the opportunity of catching up with them uh, before the service tonight and to ask them some questions about how it is they've come to this point, what's really significant for them. And the passage we just heard read touches on some of those things. So what I'd like to do is speak to the passage. Let's have a look at what it's saying, what it teaches us, what it says, and then consider what it might mean for us and for them. So uh, let's do that together. Mark chapter 2. If you've got the Bible still, open it up, uh, page 1002, and have a look. Preachers often say that, and then they never take you back to it again. But here's the thing. If you get bored with what I'm saying, it'll do you some good to read it. So uh, just have it there, just in case. I'll try and hold your attention in the meantime. Mark chapter 2. You know that Mark didn't put the 2 in there. Um, the Bible wasn't written by him with the numbers, with any of the numbers. The, the chapters were created, well, centuries actually, after Mark wrote it. The verses were put in so that we could have a convenient way of finding it. And so um, sometimes those breaks are really, really helpful and sometimes they are real pains because you think, why did they put the break there? It, it would have been a lot better just a little bit later on, a little bit earlier would have been much better than putting the break where it is. But in Mark, with chapter 2, I think it's in a really helpful spot where the, the editors or whoever he was that put the number in, where he's put that is a really helpful spot because up until this point in Mark, what Jesus has been doing has just been spectacular and it's been working in a way that changes at chapter 2. And so in some ways, the chapter break there makes you go, look at this, this is different. Have you heard this story before, by the way? Has anybody, you have? 
There's a little bit of a problem if you've heard this story before with me speaking to it because there's a good chance you know it so well you're going to forget what I say. And so if you've heard this one before, you need to work a little bit harder than people that have never heard it before. But if you've never heard it before, what I want you to do is consider what's different. If you go back to chapter 1, you'll notice pretty quickly in chapter 1 that everything Jesus does works. And he does it almost without anyone having to do anything. That is, when people get healed, they just come to him and they're healed. Some people go up to him and touch him and they get healed because they touch him. Other people he goes to and he touches and they get healed. But all the way through that chapter, there are people getting healed and restored and repaired and it's just mind-boggling and, and, and it gets everybody's attention. Suddenly people are going, who is this guy? In fact, one of the very early times in his ministry, when Jesus started off, he went to a synagogue and, it, and he was speaking, like doing a sermon. He was, he was teaching. And a guy came in and just started yelling at the top of his head, interrupting everything, disturbing everything, and absolutely stopping the attention from being taken to the Word of God. So Jesus said to this man, who obviously had some issues, actually... I recognise there's a demon in you, be gone. And, and he, he restored the man. It, it was spectacular. Now, I've I got to say, in church, if people um, come in and, and something like that were to happen, so if someone ran in off the corso and started yelling and screaming at me and saying, I know who you are, I know, I've known you, I know all about you, and they were yelling and, and disrupted everything, and then people tried to calm them down, if I then said, just calm, be still, let's just talk about it. And the person did. I reckon afterwards, at the meal that's going to be served afterwards, you're chatting, I reckon you're going to be talking more about that than guess what they talked about when Jesus did it? His sermon. They were so impressed with the way he taught that that overrode everything that had happened. It's a stunning introduction to Jesus. Everyone he meets, he heals. Everyone he speaks to are just profoundly moved and crowds start forming. In chapter 2, he's back in Capernaum. It's a town where he lived for a while. It's where his friends live. He's back in Capernaum and the crowds are there. Guess why? He's teaching them and he's healing people. And some friends of a man who is paralysed. We don't know his name. He's only described as a man who's paralysed. He can't walk. He can't move. He can't do anything for himself. His friends bring him to Jesus because Jesus has got a reputation for healing people and putting them right. He's put right people who can't walk, who can't see, who can't hear, people with leprosy, uh, people who have got all sorts of mental illnesses and demonic problems. He puts everybody right. So why wouldn't you bring your friend who can't walk to Jesus? Because if he can't walk, he can't work. If he can't work, he can't earn money. And there's no social security in the first century. There's no way this man can be cared for. Very little prospect that anyone will marry him. And therefore, in the future, his parents, who are probably ageing, will not be able to care for him either. Without the ability to walk and work, he can't help himself. There's nothing he can do for himself. So his friends bring him to meet Jesus. And I think that's an incredibly compassionate thing on their part. 
But there's a problem. When they arrive, it's so full of people, the house is so packed, they can't get in to see Jesus. And so did you hear in the story what they did? Up onto the roof, take the roof off and drop him in. Now, to us, that's the kind of thing that would be a little disturbing. If someone came to your home, took the roof off and dropped If someone came tonight, took the roof off and dropped them in, that would be different. I think we'd remember that. The date would go down in history because of that. But in the ancient world, that was a pretty normal thing to do. For a few years, we lived in Belgium. And I remember going to work. Uh, in, I worked in a village and uh, I was going into my office. And as I was walking down the street, there's a crane in the street lifting a piano through the roof of a house, over the top of the house, and down into the street. When I got into the office, I said, you wouldn't believe what I just saw. They said, what? I said, there's a crane in the street, lifted a piano up through the roof, over the top of the house, and down into the street. They said, and what happened? I said, well, did, did you not hear what I said? They lifted a crane through the roof. I said, well, how else are you going to get it out of the house? We always do that. I said, Really? So there you go. They said, well, yeah, have a look at the staircases and the doorways. Too narrow, too steep to get furniture in and out. We take out the windows and we take off the roof. Do it all the time. First century, it wasn't unusual to make your way into a house through the roof. Downstairs was probably where your animals were, and the doorways and the entrances are too small for furniture. So through the roof is not unusual. What's unusual is that in the house is Jesus who is teaching people who are religious experts and the crowds about the kingdom of God. That's what's different here. You've got people coming to Capernaum in Galilee to learn something. That is different from this man who has got a record for healing people. That is different. And when they drop him down, they believe that Jesus can help their friend. He needs to be able to walk so he can work so he can have some hope for the future. And so when they drop him down, they're a little bit surprised when they hear Jesus speak because what Jesus says when this man appears in front of them is, son, your sins are forgiven. Now I imagine the friends at the top are going, sins? It's his legs. Fix his legs. The legs are the problem. What are you doing talking about forgive the Fix his legs. But Jesus is very deliberate in what he does. A friend of mine was named Rolf Peterson. I visited Rolf in the last days of his life. Rolf was dying with cancer. He was so ill, we knew the end was very close. And so I said to Rolf, Rolf, I hope you don't mind me asking, but do you have your affairs in order? And he said, no, thank you for asking, Chris. I have put my affairs in order, but there are a couple of things I'd like you to do for Gillian, my wife. And we shared what they were, uh, and, and I was able to help. I said, the other thing, Rolf, if you don't mind me saying, is are you ready to stand before God? He said, thank you for asking. Because he said, I know I will stand before God. And yes, I am ready to stand before him. You know, if there was anything I could do at that point to put my hand into him and rip that cancer out of him, do you think I wouldn't? Do you think if there's anything on earth that I could do to cure him that I wouldn't do it? You bet I would. 
I'd do whatever I could to help him. And do you think my heart is softer than Jesus' heart? Do you think I have more compassion than Jesus? No. Then why does Jesus not turn his attention to the man's obvious need of legs? i tell you why. The man has a more obvious need. But it's not obvious to everyone in the room. And it may not have been obvious to you as you read the passage. But it is obvious to the Son of God who knows everyone's heart. And this is his need. And it's greater than the need to walk and work, to find a marriage partner and to have a secure future. His need is to be forgiven. And so Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. The message of the Bible, the message of this gospel, hinges so much on this message of forgiveness. When Jesus is with his friends the night before he died, they were celebrating a meal together and he actually took a cup and he said, my blood will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is such an important theme in this message we have from Mark about who Jesus is and what Jesus did, what Jesus said, why Jesus came. So that on the cross, in the other Gospels, we read that Jesus, as he died, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness is so important because without forgiveness, we cannot be right with God. Some people think that if I do the right things, if I do the religious things, then God will be pleased with me. And one of those religious things could be baptism or maybe a religious thing to do would be confirmation. Wouldn't that be good? If I do those religious things, then God will look on me and go, yeah, you've ticked the boxes, you've done pretty well, come on in. But it doesn't work like that. And the Bible makes it very clear that it doesn't work like that. Jesus, in this story, at the beginning of this gospel, underscores what will be important. And it's not being religious. And it's not being baptised, confirmed, married, consecrated, or anything like that, that the church has done. What is most important is that we are put right with God. And the one who can do that, the only one who can do that, is Jesus the confirmees who come tonight may now be wondering, well, why am I doing this? <laughs> Good question. The reason you do it is there's an opportunity for you to stand before your family, your church family, and your friends and to say, I look to Jesus and no one else for being made right with God. He's the only one. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. But there are so many people who don't accept the cross. And therefore, what these young people are doing is actually a very bold thing. I would ask you, therefore, to pray for them, encourage them, and support them. What they're doing may not be anything in terms of their salvation. It's not. But it's a really courageous thing to do, to stand up here in, and to say, I'm trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. I'm trusting Jesus for the rest of my life. And I think that's a wonderful thing. It was great to hear Liana's story. They all have a story like that. Find out what their story is and how they've discovered forgiveness. It's a good thing. You know what? The whole message of this gospel is about forgiveness. 
And Jesus dying on the cross is what it took for us to be forgiven. I don't know whether you read in the news, but in the last week, the police memorial in the domain has been vandalised twice. And when the police uh, spokesman was interviewed about it, he said, I'm appalled and angered that someone would treat the sacrifice that was made by these people so lightly. There are so many people who look on the death of Jesus so lightly. How do you think God responds when people treat the death of his son lightly? When they treat it as a holiday or nothing? These young people have said his death is so significant. His forgiveness is so important that I actually want to commit myself to him from now on. In the story in Mark, it goes on and you'll see there's a little bit of a theological argy-bargy about the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that so typical of religious leaders? Here's something spectacular that said, let's argue about it. (laughs) It seems like religious leaders have been doing that for centuries. What's interesting is Jesus asks them a question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? What do you think is easier? The commentators on this passage um, argue about how this question should be addressed and how you should look at it. You know what's really interesting? It doesn't matter how you take the question, both are impossible for us. Both are impossible. I can't say your sins are forgiven, nor can I say get up and walk to someone who's paralysed unless I've got power and authority. The only one with the power to heal was Jesus. The only one with the authority to forgive sins is Jesus because the only one offended by our sin is God himself. Jesus shows through this that he is God and he has that authority. He has that that power. And to prove it, he said to the man, would you just get up, take up your mat and walk? And the guy stood up, no physiotherapy, no rehabilitation, and he walked out, showing everyone that Jesus had the power and the authority to forgive sin. Your sin, my sin. And he still has it. Do you believe it? For our confirmees, they may be on a scale of believing, and you may be too, and I wonder where you are. Have you believed this at all? There are some people who've said to me, I believe, but I'm, I'm, I'm just not certain. And there are others I know who understand this completely, totally. Others say, I don't believe it at all. I don't know that you can trust it. When we lived in Belgium, um, at the end of our street was a, the Royal Park. The king had given it to the people to use. And so you could walk in there and have lovely picnics and things like that. And each winter, the lake in the park would freeze over. And each winter when we went down there, it fascinated me, coming from Australia, to see a lake, a whole lake, go solid. That was, that was quite amazing. One Christmas, we had some guests with us from Australia And we had our lunch and then we decided we'd go down and go for a bit of a walk after lunch through the snow. 
Uh, my son-in-law is Swedish and he knows all these things about ice and snow. Swedes are good at that. I mean, they, you know, Volvos, Ikea and snow. They're very good on those three things. Um, and so, I, you know, you can kind of trust him. Uh, in, he knows what he's talking about. And we went down, we got to the lake and he said, let's walk across the lake. My friend from Australia said, how do you know it's safe? And he said, oh, well, you know, it looks okay. Really? Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was absolutely confident. Me, I'd been living there for about five years. I'd seen it freeze. I'd seen people walk on it. So I was reasonably confident you could go on it. My friend, Matt, he was petrified. There's no way he was going to walk on it. I said, no, come on. Step out. Come on to the lake. So we walked out. Now, Marcus, my son-in-law, he's walking across like... So what? It's just, it's just what you do. <laughs> Sorry, if, if there's anybody here from Sweden, I apologise. That was a cheap shot, okay? And if this is being recorded and Marcus listens, I'm sorry, dear son. But he, he was just walking across. I was going, pretending like I was comfortable, but I was not comfortable at all. And my friend Matt was like this. He was panicking, especially when you look through the ice and you can see a fish. He said, there's a fish under there. How thick is this? Is this safe? He was absolutely scared stiff. Here's the point of the story. It really doesn't matter how we felt. What mattered was what we'd taken our stand on. And that was what matters. For this man in this story, I don't know how he felt. I don't know how you feel. I don't know how the confirmees feel other than a bit nervous about getting up in a minute. It doesn't really matter about how we feel. What really matters is what we take our stand on. Jesus is the one who in this story and throughout this gospel shows, he's the one with the authority to forgive sins and to put us right with God. And he's the only one that can do that. And these young people want to stand up tonight and say, we trust him. I think that's a fantastic thing. It's something to be really thankful for and to celebrate with them. Amen. Thank you.